0: welcome to the commentary magazine daily podcast today is wednesday april 13th 2022 i'm john Podhorts, the editor of commentary magazine inviting you to join us at commentary.org for the release of the may issue of commentary remarkable stuff in this issue ruth weiss on Zelensky as jewish hero joseph epstein on thomas carlisle the, the victorian sage um remarkable pieces by John Shanzer uh, a remarkable piece by John Shanzer on the horrible position that Israel has been put in uh, because of the uh, its relations with Russia and the war in Ukraine just great stuff all around and joining us to discuss his essay in the magazine which uh, which is called is there a right left uh, is is Commentary's own Washington commentary columnist and author of the all but out book, The Right, uh, which will be a which will be a subject of a symposium in the June issue. Uh, uh, Many people discussing Matt's 100 year war for the soul of conservatism in the United States. Matthew Continetti joined the podcast again. Hi, Matt. Thank you, John. It's great to be here and here to discuss Matt's book, Matt's essay, and many other things. Uh, our regular cast of characters, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rossman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So before we get to the discussion of uh, whether there is a right-left, um, obviously the big news of the last 24 hours was the a uh, horrendous, uh, open firing during rush hour in uh, sunset park, Brooklyn, uh, at the 36th street, uh, subway station. Um, uh, I, I don't know. I, the, 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 the 19 people <laughs> injured, uh, I think 12 or 13 shot several in critical condition, 23 issued I- injured now. 23 injured. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, I, I mean, I'm going to rehearse the, the, you know, the, the facts, but a uh, guy shows up, he's wearing a gas mask. He lets off a smoke bomb. He then just starts shooting, um, the gun jams. He drops his bag. He runs out of the station. Uh, they, they, they retrieve the bag, which has other devices in it. Um, and more, more ammunition and various other things. Uh, he's now on the lamb, uh, he is there. We now have an officially named suspect, uh, which we'll we'll get to um, in a minute. Um, this raises ten thousand different questions. Uh, the only reason that it raises ten thousand different questions and can't be looked at as a simple kind of like isolated act of terrorism that we have to look at as an isolated act of terrorism is that it follows along uh, months and months of increasingly bizarre and horrible crimes being committed, uh, on the nation's largest transit system. And it's, you know, it's most used public transit system, uh, all of which, uh, have this quality of being acts out of the ordinary. Um, they're not, you know, economic acts, they're not, they're fights that turn into people smashing people over the head with hammers, pushing people on subway tracks, um, and, you know, the kind of if the logical end result of this um, antinomian feeling in the subways is that somebody felt uh, it a, uh, a thing that he could do, that he could go into a subway and then open fire, uh, that, that doesn't, that's not a result in isolation or the result of, you know, a single person's, you know, psychotic delusions or something like that. It seems to be some kind of climax, or one hopes it is a climax, of this period of uh, increasingly bizarre uh, acts of, um, of public violence um, that are, you know that, that seem to emerge from this general crime wave that began really in June of 2020, though in New York City really began in, in February of uh, 2019. Uh, Abe, you, you had some thoughts about, about our suspect uh, yesterday.
1: Right. So his name is Frank James. He's a black man. I believe he's 62, which is uh, unusual. Um, Andy Ngo, uh the, the sort of uh, anti-Antifa uh, journalist who, who is great at digging up a lot of Information that uh, a lot of mainstream outlets ignore or or, or don't find uh, went through uh, the guy's social media and other things, and I was and some other people have as well, and turned up a bunch of videos and uh, visual memes that the guy used, um, proclaiming a bunch of anti-white sentiment. Uh, extolling the virtues of of shooting up people in the name of racial justice. Uh, This is something we have seen before. Um, We saw this, uh, for example, uh, last year in the Waukesha, Wisconsin uh, parade massacre, where uh, Daryl Brooks drove through the parade, uh, killed six people. Um, And it made me think that I said to myself, oh, it's going to be interesting to watch how the media ignores this angle of it. If, in fact, uh, Frank James turns out to be the assailant. Um, It struck me that uh, we know Kyle Rittenhouse's name and we'll we'll know his name uh, for as long as we live. And this is a guy uh, who was found not guilty on all charges. And uh, the deal The extraordinarily big deal that was made of him as uh, some sort of racist monster, uh, we are intended to uh, sort of live with forever. But if you go back, uh, you can go back to the 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 congressional uh, softball attack, uh, where um, a guy named James Hodgkinson uh, shot up a bunch of uh, congressmen and uh, playing softball. He was he was a left wing activist uh, motivated by his hatred for Republicans. No one really knows his name or what happened to him. He he got shot. He got shot there by police. The point is that whenever there is um, uh, an act of grave violence motivated in this country, motivated by either radical left wing ideas or uh, enacted by a member of a minority who's doing so uh, maybe perhaps per- perpetrating a hate crime. We hear nothing about that angle. And it, so I, I was thinking about how many instances of, 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 this there have been. So there's the congressional softball attack, by the way, we know the name of the guy who shot uh, Gabby Gifford in 2012, Jared Lee Lofner, because, yep. because while he wasn't political, uh, that story, the intention there was to was to use that shooting um, to frame a dangerous Republican martial language right. and, and, and threats. But if you go back to uh, the 2019 Jersey City uh, killing at the at the, in the kosher market, uh, killed five people. Uh, these were uh, two assailants, black Israelites Kill them in in the name of anti-Semitism. No one, no one, no one is familiar with them. David, Nathaniel I got I got Anderson. another one.
0: Got another that one for
1: bre- you. Go, okay, go ahead. I got more too.
0: Okay, Dallas police officers massacre of Dallas police officers in in, in 2016. Five officers killed, nine others shot, committed by Micah Johnson, uh, uh, angry over the police shootings of black men. Um, and. Uh, he was killed by law enforcement uh, with a bomb attached to a remote control robot. Um, this actually is the deadliest uh, deadliest day for uh, peace officers in the United States since 9-11. Micah Johnson, we don't know his name. We remember Nicholas Sandman's name, right? Nicholas Sandman That's was right. the kid who, who was falsely accused of um, making a face at a guy was who was smirking. Was, it was a
2: very smirking. aggressive smirking. He was accused John. of smirking
0: yes. a yes. punchable very, face. Yeah. Aggressive yeah. smirking. Aggressive <laughs> smirking.
3: Um, but, but, uh, Abe's, Abes ha- point briefly about, about Gab Giffords is actually really important because there was an, an industry wide in the media attempt to make that into a political assassination attempt, not a guy who is mentally disturbed. And everybody recognizes that now, especially after the Times suit, uh, recognizes that as a mistake. And it's trotted out every time you have an event like this, where the time th-
0: suit. You mean when Sarah Palin sued the New York Times for right? I mean, we all knew it was a in their beforehand. editorial that she that she had something
3: she, she had target targeted. Yeah, target yeah, her, yeah, her, her, her map had had a map, a map on her
0: website, yeah, and yeah, he was mentally disturbed.
3: And so now the the, the refrain is, well, it well, was, was, was schizophrenic. Be more cautious. Yeah, yeah, we should be more cautious when events like these happen because this suspect. Uh, spent a lot of time on social media attacking New York City's mental health facilities. He was very frustrated with the care he was receiving. He was clearly disturbed and angry about it. But he was also animated by Black supremacist thought. Those two things exist simultaneously on this guy's feed. And so the, the refrain now is, well, in the wake of the Gabby Giffords uh, mistake that was made in this industry, we should be far more cautious and focus instead charitably on his mental issues and not on the corrosive ideology to which he was an adherent. And yet they make the same mistake over and over and over again, every time when the suspect is potentially animated by uh, corrosive ideas uh, around white supremacy. So they have it both ways and they use that their mistake in Arizona as a cudgel to stop people from acknowledging their own hypocrisies. It's terrible. I mean, it's an absolutely, I,
0: I think it's an unassailable point. Um, you know, uh, it's funny because um, uh, David Byrne of The Talking Heads uh, just closed a show that he has had on Broadway intermittently for two years, rapturously praised. Uh, there's a version of it on on HBO uh, that Spike Lee filmed. It's called American Utopia. And three quarters of the way into the show where he does Burning Down the House and all the hits and the Everyone's dancing around barefoot and drummers come forward and back. It's a very, uh, you know, amusingly and interestingly staged concert. A little boring uh, after a while, uh, my, my impression. But like two thirds of the way in, he's like, OK, we now have to do a, a number that uh, that we really like. Uh, Janelle I wrote it. And it is it just goes like this. Brianna Taylor, say her name. Philando Castile, say his name. George Floyd say his name so so say his name everyone being you know a black person who was either killed by law enforcement or you know in a in a you know in a mistaken whatever and i think it's interesting cuz of course overwhelmingly white audience for david burns american utopia sits there and feels full of righteous indignation and fury at this you know at the white supremacy uh, that uh, causes uh, these kinds of incidents and all of that, and yeah, and we just literally did a litany of names that no one knows. Um, people who went on murder sprees that are political that do not that do not represent a political interest uh, of of the mainstream media to to uh, discuss and exploit.
2: But there's also about, not.
1: How, oh, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry, but I just got. How about the. Pulse nightclub shooter, um, or the Louisville which, this,
2: murder, it's an attempt yeah, but, the attempted assassination of a mayoral candidate in Louisville.
1: Also, Pulse, yeah, Pulse nightclub. You know, sort of um, that incident wraps, pulls together all this stuff because that was a clear stated act of jihad in sympathy with ISIS coming from the horse's mouth. He said, "I did this in, to, as allegiance to ISIS." His name is Omar Mateen. He killed forty nine people. And that it, was that was that was tried. They tried to frame that. No, But he was a self-hating of American yeah. homophobia. Right. Yeah, he was a self-hating, self-loathing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he was a self-hating gay man. It was a gay to, panic
2: explanation. Actually. It was a gay was panic kind of explanation. Obnoxious. Yeah, yeah.
0: Which, by the way, itself is interesting, because I don't know in our currently woke state, because for some reason, uh, Barack Obama did not want to greet the pulse shooting as though it were an act of jihad on American soil it was therefore okay to somehow resuscitate a um a <laughs> the, cliche in American yeah. cultural trope trope, yes. about how you know uh there are psychotic gay men who kill people because they they can't because they can't cope with their own homosexuality there this is a this is a a plot line in, you know, daring cop stories of the fifties and sixties, you know, it's sort of like a plot from to the American headlines. beauty. Yes. Well, that's right. yeah, that's right. That's right. So anyway, it's a that's a that's a very. Uh, can, I, can
2: I just add yeah. on to something, though, that that both Noah and Abe were pointing to, which is it's not just that we don't uh, that the mainstream media doesn't want to list the race of a of an attacker when it's a mass shooting or a mass killing, if they happen to be black, is that they don't want to talk at all about the any sort of cultural or intellectual roots that are motivating these folks in, at the same level that they want to about anyone who believes in QAnon, anyone who's even considered mildly white supremacist. This is and I'm glad I'm glad Noah used the term black supremacist. This isn't black nationalism. This is black supremacy. This, the suspect in this recent case, his social media feed is full of him being angry at Asians, angry at Hispanics, angry at white people, and even angry at recent Supreme Court Justice uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson because she's married to a white man. So it is a kind of, it, it is the flip side of the, the things we hear about when we hear about all the warnings against white supremacy. So it's, but it's interesting that there's no curiosity about what is driving people who believe that. And it is all over social media. In a lot of these cases, it's just acknowledged and moved on and they, they did or, or not acknowledged at all. But there isn't there is an entire culture online that is anti-Semitic. It is anti-Asian. It's anti-white. And it is embraced by a you know significant minority of black people in this country. And nobody wants to talk about it.
1: The uh, and, I read the, yeah. the The New York Times uh, first uh, piece on on the subway suspect, um, covered him. Um, their take was neighbors describe him as quiet, but gruff.
4: <laughs> well, Can gruff I just talk about um, yes. the uh, political angle here? Because Please. there are much larger implications um, of this than just what the awful tragedy that's happened in New York. I mean, remember New York City's mayor was elected on an, a pledge to restore order to new york city and he's now um you know about four months into the job um and uh having trouble it seems especially on the subways uh partly because of the conditions it, it the statewide conditions in new york when you think about the um the, the bail reform that is clearly one of the worst public policy mistakes uh, in recent american history um you have the the public corruption on the day that this happens, this attack happens, the Lieutenant governor of New York is arrested on bribery charges. (laughs) Someone just went through the list of New York state officials who have resigned or been arrested uh, over the past 10, 16, 10, 20 years. And it's amazing how um, uh, kind of rancid this blue state model is with public corruption. And that connected to problems with public safety. And then the larger national frame is Democrats are being hammered by the crime issue. It is hurting them big time, especially among Hispanic voters. And so it, this is one more data point, uh, which um, feeds into the, the um, I think, the, the large amount of evidence pointing to a major Republican election in November. So it's not just the power of the mainstream media to set these narratives among liberal elites, which turn out to be incredibly damaging uh, um, to, to public policy. Um, it's also the flip side, which is the building public reaction, uh, which I think will manifest itself at the polls. Look, this is
0: absolutely right. And here's, here's the reason that this is not can't be taken as sort of a one-off event by a crazy person doing something horrible. Um, If this, I mentioned at the beginning, this spate of crimes on the subway that seem to be expressions of a psychotic underbelly in New York City, where people are out and about doing things that are crazy and uh and violent and crazy. Why isn't this like the 1970s in New York, the famous Death Wish years? Because while those were violent years and they were very frightening and very menacing, they weren't that crazy. you know these were muggings and burglaries and home invasions uh, there were rapes and things like whatever they were this wasn't a manifestation of, schizophrenia or psychosis or violent psychosis it was something else and arguably much worse but there is something uniquely frightening about the fact that someone's standing on a subway platform and then hits somebody over the head with a hammer or pushes somebody onto a subway track and if you have dozens of these stories which we have since the beginning of the year and and dating back to the middle of last year The idea that something that might have been unthinkable in another time becomes thinkable to a guy like this suspect, should he be the actual killer, has to be taken very seriously. Let's say that we're in a safe New York where the general idea is that there are eyes on subway platforms and there might be a transit cop or some wandering up and down the platform. You don't go into the platform with your gun and your bag with with the smoke bombs and things like that. You're not going to do it because you're not going to get away with it. All these messages are, you can do these things and get away with it because there's no one to stop you Or, or or, or there's no restraining of the impulse, even among a psychotic or schizophrenic who, of course, has very little impulse control. But not only is there no restraining of the impulse, there are no eyes looking to say, uh, What you doing there? What you doing there, man? You know, there's no like cops there saying they're uh, saying, What's in the bag?
1: The station's or, camera cameras.
0: And the broken. station's camera were broken. Right. Now, why do I bring this up? Because, uh, you know, I'm maybe obsessed with New York because I live in New York, but uh, it's a canary in the coal mine thing, right? New York, at the worst of the crime wave of the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and early 90s, New York was never a very, was never an unsafe city to the degree that Washington, D.C. was, that New Orleans was. Murders per capita in New Orleans were triple or quadruple what they were in New York. Other cities were more dangerous. But the crime in New York was redolent of a disorder, of a level of disorder, it's almost like you rode off newark new jersey like why why wouldn't it be violent like what's there what's there to prevent it from being violent new york is the capital of you know basically the capital of the world it's the financial capital of the planet all of that stuff right and and it shouldn't be like this here it can't be like this here um And what we have now is a subway system that people aren't going on. So it's much less crowded. So there are no eyes on the street. Um, There are more cops, but for some reason, there were no cops in this. This is a very, this is not a Manhattan subway station, but it is a subway station where three lines converge. Uh, The B, the N, and the R, they all come together and you have to, you can switch for one or three different lines that go off in different directions. And you know who was on the platform and on the trains? Teenagers, kids going to and from school. It, was, it wasn't just rush hour. It was school hour. And um, where this then dovetails with politics is, I'm looking on Twitter. I'm looking at liberal social justice activists on Twitter who say, we could have had 100,000 cops in the streets in New York and you wouldn't have stopped this guy. So I don't think cops are the answer. Well, uh, bullshit, actually, because if if every subway station, and there are a lot of them, so you'd have to increase the number of transit cops and stuff like that. But if every subway station 24-7 had a police officer on it walking back and forth 24 hours a day. No, it wouldn't have
3: happened. This is a profound indictment of the social justice movement's prescription for crime and remedying crime, which is early intervention, unarmed intervention by social workers or violence interrupters or whatever they call them. Um, If this guy's posts start to be believed and it's confirmed later in media, we should be cautious about this because we don't really know. But if his posts are to be believed, he was in the system. The system failed him. The system is failing a lot of people. And the mental health crisis is profound, getting worse, exacerbated by COVID. And the efforts that we've made systemically, institutionally, to address this uh, rising paranoia, violent paranoia, and a failure to institutionalize people who need to be institutionalized um, is manifesting in in more violent crime. And there is no prescription for it. So they can't actually
4: address it. Well, one prescription would be to, to lock them up. Uh, and and you know, uh, Right. Um, well, but also, and this, is, this is a complicated thing, which is, you know, there were a lot of uh, critiques of the prison system uh, early in, in the century about how it basically functioned as a de facto mental health system as well. And so you would read in the New York Times all these exposés of the American prisons showing that they were just filled with dangerously mentally ill people. And one of the movements of the one of the consequences, rather, of the decarceration movement is a lot of these dangerously mentally ill people are not being held in prison anymore. Right. And especially in New York, where you have this bail reform, where it's extremely hard to combine people who are a threat to society. They're a threat to themselves, they're a threat to others, they're a threat to society. So, whereas in the Giuliani era, I think the response beginning with Giuliani's attack on the squeegee men was. If, if to restore public order by removing these elements, these dangerous elements, and these uh, visibly mentally disturbed or aggressive panhandlers or uh, clearly dangerously mentally ill people from the streets, that's been reversed. Beginning with the De Blasio era, cascading through the bail reform, coming into the COVID era, where the response of many liberal elites to COVID was to empty the prisons. <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, empty the know, prisons. And now we have this. You know, Eric
0: Adams, the mayor, two weeks ago led a move to sort of destroy these kind of homeless encampments, physical homeless encampments, to get rid of them. A couple in Manhattan, a couple in Brooklyn. And uh, and he said, I don't think there's anything dignified about somebody sleeping on a street. And this was taken by a certain population. Of you know uh, elite thinkers t- as being a terrible insult. Who are you to say that there's nothing dignified about sleeping on a street or living in a homeless encampment? I mean, how how are you to, how how are you supposed to say this? So Adams, whether his heart is in the right place or his he has a general understanding of the nature of the problem. The issue is that he is going to have to be lion-hearted and iron-spined and utterly impervious to criticism if he is going to take the steps that are necessary to reverse this. And that was what Giuliani had. And by the way, there was no way of knowing that Giuliani was going to have this when he got elected mayor. He'd never been an elected official before. And there are two things that happen when the liberal establishment comes after you in the in a, particularly if you're a Republican, whatever. And Giuliani was was used to having an incredibly favorable press. He'd been the U.S. attorney, he'd broken up the mafia, he'd gone after malefactors on Wall Street. He was a lionized figure in New York. It's hard for people to think about this now, but like in the late 80s and you know early 90s, he was a very popular, press loved him and he seemed like, okay. So the press turned on him in 1994 and it's a quirk of his personality or it's a mark of his seriousness or it's whatever it was or it's the man meeting the moment. That not only didn't he care, but those attacks juiced him. Sort of like, oh, yeah, you want, you're going to say that I'm a monster? Now I'm going to show you how much, how much of a monster I can be. You know, I don't care about what you say. When you attack me, it gives me twice the power. I am juiced every morning to think about how I'm going to irritate the New York Times editorial page. Can
3: we speak about the New York Times for a brief minute? Because they've yeah, been in this Yeah, let me kick. just finish. I just want to sure.
0: finish this one point. Okay, so that is the quality of character, which can then be bad character later for all kinds of reasons, or perversity of character, whatever it is, that Adams is going to have to have, and I don't think he has it. And And New York is on a the clock is ticking on the viability of new york city in ways that 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 actually outdistance even when it was going bankrupt in the 1970s which we, which I won't go into because it's that's the whole doctoral dissertation but the, the but times. he's got a year he's got a year <clears throat> and then the recession is going to hit and then ha- money there's going to be way less money in the city coffers He's going to need more cops. There's going to be a big fight over resources. And his mayoralty could be a kind of epic disaster in which nothing works and everything goes wrong
3: all at once. Anyway, I know it. So the New York Times. Yeah, just the New York Times briefly has been on this weird kick. And I think some MSNBC meta blog types have been doing this as well, Um, sort of looking at the Katanji Brown Jackson hearings and saying, well, Republicans are clearly expecting to get more support from minority voters, but they're sure not acting like it. They're not earning it. They're being very disrespectful of this nominee, and therefore they're, you know, they're they're kowtowing to their white base, and we don't really understand why this is happening. But they expect more support from from minorities, and they kind of—it's a tone of resentment here. But I think they because they've internalized so many social justice narratives, many of which are stereotypes, um, suggesting that it's it's racially insensitive to believe that minorities care about crime because it suggests they live in urban environments. It suggests that they have their, uh, in, in particular, social circumstances, and we can't think that way. But they do. Pew Research Center had a poll suggesting that crime is, is a priority for 67% of Black voters. It's way above improving the political system, social security, education. Um, it's, it's one of the primary issues for, for minority voters. And one party has an answer to it, and one party does not. So yes, they are earning it. They're serving the interests of this community in ways that that the progressives don't even want to acknowledge, in part fueled by the people who pretend to speak for this for this demographic and the apparatuses they have constructed for themselves, which purchase six million dollar houses in Southern California and complain about filing 990s because that's racist violence. And these are the people who are guiding the policy prescriptions for minority voters on the left. And they're just losing the, de- the demographic.
1: Well, Look, there's no right. question that. uh Statistically, the largest number of victims of crime waves and of defunding police campaigns and all the rest of it are minorities. I mean, this 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 happens in minority neighborhoods. They are affected far more than white people are. And they are at this point overwhelmingly against the defund movement.
3: You know, what's fun in this people poll is a brief digression. Dealing with immigration is a much bigger priority for white people than Hispanic people.
2: It's Meaning just all deal- the,
3: they've internalized all yeah. these narratives right. about minority voters yeah. that are bald face
0: stereotypes. Well, I mean, this is a very important point, and it's it's so rich that it's you know, we would we, we caricature it even by discussing it, you know, very briefly. Um, because the uh, the existence of pressure groups, particularly minority pressure groups, has always had this quality of the power structure, whatever the power structure is saying, to people that they don't understand, just tell me what you want. Tell me what you want, and I'll, I'll I'll try to give it to you. I'm rich, you know. I got a lot of resources. I got a lot of I got a lot of power. Just tell me what you want. And the activists who do this, then tell them what they want. But what they want doesn't actually is not what the mass of that they're supposed to represent wants. They want power. They want money. They want control over, you know, hiring decisions and they, they want their taste, right? That's what they want. That's not what ordinary people in the tens of millions, you know, millions and millions of people want who want a fair shake. You know, they want to get more, they want more money to, do things with their family. They want to live safely. You know, they don't want to be harassed. That's what people want. <clears throat> you know, the idea that what a person who is, you know, like uh, scrambling paycheck to paycheck wants is a black woman on the Supreme court. And that that act of tokenism is then going to win some kind of fealty for decades to come because, that is not what they want that is what you know people who care about the racial composition of the of nominees to the supreme court want this is a misunderstanding it's always been a misunderstanding that's tokenism the using tokenism as a method of making policy is very effective in quieting down attacks on you when you do the token when you do the tokenist stuff but it does not give you any reach or access to the larger group of people who are just ordinary people and who want what everybody wants black yeah. people want what white people want yeah. they want I mean, to live yeah. safely comfortably and you know and uh, <laughs> hispanic people want what white people want everybody wants an opportunity the same thing. society
3: as uh, Mr. Continetti will elaborate on.
4: Well, yeah. it, rem- it reminds me um, of something that uh, Irving Kristol once wrote, which is that the self-assigned duty of neoconservatives is to explain to the American people why they are right and to the intellectuals why <laughs> they are wrong. And and this is kind of goes into, John, your piece in the most recent issue of commentary about how, in many ways, we're reentering a neoconservative moment. Because... Most people, all regular people, no matter what their identity, uh, think that dangerous people belong behind bars. <laughs> and yet it's the intellectuals who come up with all these theories that, that somehow it's dignified to live in squalor in these tent cities that, are, that they're allowing to appear um, uh, in, in our greatest cities. And so it's a real, it's a moment of opportunity not just for Republicans, but for conservative and neoconservative writers and thinkers to, to remind people of, of these, of just how wrong the intellectuals can be, you know, right. and, what the, and what the traditional answers for these problems are. Let's talk about
0: one of those uh, conservative intellectuals. That's our friend, David Bonson at the Bonson Group and his book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic truths. So David... Uh, uh, put out this book, uh, which is a sort of primer, a daily, um, you know, sort of daily guide to ideas about ordered liberty, freedom and economic security um, uh, to combat uh, wrongheaded, foolish, um, ignorant and uh, destructive ideas about how society should be ordered to produce human flourishing and um, And so uh, each day there's a quote and there's an explanation as a quotes from philosophers, from economists, from from religious figures uh, that then elucidate um, and represent a a set of ideas about, as I say, human flourishing and economic uh, liberty. It's a very um, it's a very helpful, a very heartening, a very illuminating guide. And you can get it at Amazon, at Barnes and Noble, wherever you get uh, your books, give it as a present, read it yourself, consult it on a daily basis, put up some of these quotes on Facebook, whatever you wanna do, that's David Bonson's There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. Now, Matt, let's talk about your piece, uh, Is There a Right Left, uh, which um, is, uh, is an, uh, how would you describe it? Is, a, is an ancillary set of arguments to your book, which is a, a, which is a work of history. So Matt's book, the Right, which you can now order at this very same place as you can order, David Bonson's book, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, all of that, is a, is a history of American conservatism um, in the 20th and early 21st centuries. Uh, and it, it, you, 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 you postulate that there is a constant interplay, conflict uh, back and forth between populism, and, cons- and 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 conservatism broadly understood, and that neither can function without the other, and yet each makes the other dysfunctional in some fashion. So, pure populism, absent conservatism, uh, is is a recipe for chaos, and conservatism, absent populism, is a recipe for some kind of weird, out of touch, misunderstanding of the of the needs and wants and the heart, the 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 deepest heart of the American political experiment. So where are we? What, to lay out for me wh- where the right is, according to
4: your essay. Well, um, so the essay uh, is sort of a, an appendix to the book, I guess the w- uh, would be the way to say it. It draws from the book a little bit, but it also expands in other places. And it describes basically um, how the insiders, uh, the conservative elites of the mid-1990s, Became outsiders by 2020, mainly because of uh, one the growth of one side of that equation, the populist side of that equation, and the conservative um, inability to um, to to reckon with the populism, uh, to uh, channel it, uh, to um, absorb it, um, and it eventually led to. Um, the conservative establishment of the time of the 1990s being being overthrown in, um, in many ways, or in the parts of it that weren't overthrown were, I think, irrevocably changed.
0: So to, to give uh, an example, you don't really go into, but um, so uh, I was one of the founders of the Weekly Standard. You worked at the Weekly Standard for 12 years? Eight years. Eight years. Um, uh, familial connection to the weekly standard. Um, uh, and the weekly standard, it's interesting because when you refer to the Republican establishment, so the Republican establishment doesn't really refer to something like the weekly standard, which was an intellectual project whose purpose actually was explicitly designed to keep the, the Republican establishment honest and to make sure that it didn't corrupt itself um, and this was something that has been a pro- was a project of yours, an intellectual project of yours from a very young age. I mean, you wrote a book about about the uh, the corruption of lobbying, how the how the lobbying on K Street, the K Street gang, corrupted the Republican Party and made it a kind of handmaiden of uh, economic interests that they that the party should not have been beholden to. And you were also excited by the prospect of Sarah Palin. Being some maybe providing some possibility of a synthesis of these two uh, forces, the populism and conservatism, because she had a a sunny, uh, positive, uh, good government outlook as governor of Alaska, but she did not. You know, she was as outsider as you could possibly get, um, and
4: and and that did not pan out in that fashion. No, and it, it, Palin exemplified, I think, um, the, uh, the, the schisms that populism can, can create, not only between um, the grassroots and uh, the kind of liberal elites that we've been discussing in the first half of the podcast, but also within the Republican Party and the conservative movement, because it was very interesting to me. And it was a, a whole chapter of the, the Palin book, The Persecution of Sarah, Sarah Palin, deals with class.
0: That's and your book.
4: My book, yeah, that book I you uh, wrote, yeah, my book I wrote in 2009. It deals with class, and how I write, I and how we imagine class in the United States is really through educational attainment um, and uh, kind of uh, v- values, uh, public religiosity, all these things. Palin represented everything that <laughs> that the um, up, upper classes, so to speak, of both parties found alien and strange, and so there was a division not only between Democrats and Republicans uh, of how they viewed Palin, but also among Republicans. And in many ways, I think Palin was an arbinger of what has happened in the in the last decade because she, she had this electric connection with uh, the conservative grassroots. And then she, after the loss in 2008, she quickly morphed into a leader of the Tea Party. And the Tea Party, which I at the time thought could have a Reaganite expression, could have a much more optimistic, agenda-driven, growth-oriented expression, went in a different direction, uh, and it became a Trumpist uh, movement. And so you can kind of see how this populism kind of uh, appear. It's always been there, but it begins its real upswing, I think, with Palin's appearance in 2008. And it's, uh, it continues uh, to, this, to this day. And of course, in a neat symmetry, uh, I wrote the Palin book in 2009. That was the last book I wrote. I have a new book out now, The Right. And Sarah Palin has returned. She's running yes. for, for Congress. So it's, it's all coming together.
0: Yes, everything. Yes, uh, there is nothing new under the sun, right? No. So I brought up the weekly standard and I bring it up in this way because the weekly standard then was this, as I say, wanted to keep the Republican establishment honest, was opposed to K Street and the K Streetization, uh, was an early opponent of this kind of um, uh, uh, liberal and conservative consensus that somehow uh, involving ourselves in China. Was going to have wonderful, positive consequences. That the economic freedoms the Chinese government were allowing their people would in- inevitably morph into political freedoms. The Heritage Foundation went was all in on China. Um, a lot of politicians, a lot of you know, companies uh, that were, were Republican leaning leaned on Congress to be as open and friendly as possible to their efforts to invest in China and all of that, and the weekly standard from its very early uh, days was said, do not go this way. This regime, uh, when this regime is forced to choose between liberty and tyranny to keep itself in power, it will choose tyranny and the liberties that it is allowing are conditional and do not follow the rules of Western liberty as we understand them, like sanctity of contract, uh, the sanctity of intellectual property and other things. So it was there to keep it honest, and so when Trump came along, the Weekly Standard was a very anti-Trump voice on the grounds that uh, even this this form of revolt against the Republican establishment was itself corrupted in some fashion because it was like it was on the back of this you know uh, kind of uh, guy who made his living uh, playing playing games with the tax code or you know screwing around with real estate rules or. Or whatever, and not actually having any um, intellectual fealty or ideological commitment to any conservative idea that that we that we knew were held dear. And when Trump won, um, uh, uh, and sort of uh, two two and a half years into Trump's, uh, the 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 company that owned the Weekly Standard shut it down. Shut it down. Didn't try to sell it. (laughs) Didn't try to hand it off to somebody else, like we were, some of us were talking about how we could maybe find the buyer or something like that. And they didn't want it. They wanted to shut it down. They wanted to kill it off because they thought, I mean, there are various reasons, but that what they wanted to do was say, this is no longer acceptable as part of uh, the right. Uh, we're the right, they're not the right, and we're going to silence this effort to keep the establishment honest without being, uh, a without as without being feel you know having
4: fealty to trump right. i mean it happens also in the uh the same year uh within a six-month period you have uh, charles krathammer dies um uh, in uh, june of 2018 uh, john mccain dies uh in uh, august of 2018 i believe and then the weekly standard is closed in december of 2018 and so for me that marks real Uh, transition and inflection point in the history of the American right. This essay and commentary uh, builds out um, kind of another theme of my book, which is that there's no one American conservatism. There is, in fact, uh, dozens of competing factions within the American right, um, some of them um, classically liberal, uh, others rejecting all of liberalism, back to John Locke, right? Um, Some of them populist, uh, and anti-left, others more institutionalist, right? And um, committed to preserving the constitution and the political institutions of the founding. Um, and so this essay and commentary builds this out a little bit by talking about how uh, three of these groups Um, uh, related to one another and rose and fell over the last 25 years. And so I use the Weekly Standard and I think Charles Krauthammer and John McCain uh, would fit into this category as well. as kind of the the conservative uh, intellectual foreign policy establishment of the time, of the mid-1990s, which was heavily influenced by neoconservatism, heavily influenced by by your father, John, and also heavily influenced by Irving Kristol. And by 1995, the neoconservatives had gotten to a place where they were essentially conservatives. They didn't need the prefix, right? Uh, Norman Podhortz uh, actually delivers a eulogy for neoconservatism at AEI. in 1996, uh, six, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, however, there are two other groups that at the time in the mid 1990s are on the outs. And these are the paleo conservatives, the followers of Patrick Buchanan, who um, uh, define themselves in opposition to the neoconservatives, and who uh, are much more in uh, in the tradition of the old right, pre-World War, World War II right, which I discussed in my book, um, protectionist, anti-immigration, non interventionist uh, slash isolationist. Um, uh, Buchanan, of course, tainted with uh, anti-Semitism. So that's one group. And then the other group, which uh, has become extremely important in the contemporary right, is uh, the group associated with the uh, Harry Jaffa, the political philosopher based in Claremont, California, and his think tank that his followers created in the 70s called the Claremont Institute. And they too were on the outs. They were critics of uh, all sorts of conservatives and the conservative power, including the neoconservatives. And what I do in this essay and commentary is explain how the groups on the outs, the paleocons and the Claremont uh, folks are now inside (laughs) and the neoconservatives have been pushed away. And weirdly enough, the paleocons and the Claremont School are in agreement on a lot of issues, even though the paleocons are, uh, you know, they're Southern partisans. They hate, they hate Abraham Lincoln and the Claremont School's hero, the hero of Harry Joffa, the founder of the Claremont School is Lincoln. And yet they agree uh, on a host of policy prescriptions and on their animosity toward uh, uh, neoconservatives. One of the right. things
3: I like most about this essay, is a lot to love. <clears throat> One of the things I like most about it is it's sort of an attitudinal um, tendency that you identify in, in the Straussian uh, conservative wing, the, the Claremont, Claremont-Jaffa wing, where you talk about uh, the extent to which their ideology is uh, rooted in 1861 and all progressivism and democratic politics stems from uh, the, uh, the onset of the Civil War and then you'd from there you 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 work yourself up into this idea that anybody remotely to your uh, left, even one indiscretion, is is an enemy, including Antonin Scalia, William Rehnquist, Robert Bork, what have you. And we still see this today. And it strikes me as there's this you, you identify this as a form of ideological purity that is self defeating because you have defined yourself uh, find people who are in who are your kin your ideological kin so narrowly. That it 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 closes off pathways to power for you. It reminds me a bit of the um, early Tea Party era, where in the primaries when they had these uh, contested primaries, that there was this idea of a self defeating pursuit of ideological purity on the right, and that we shouldn't be you know so dogmatic that we end up uh, sacrificing electoral viability for ideological consistency. When it wasn't in the pursuit of ideological consistency, it was an effort to draw a broader uh, circle around the people who could be uh, considered enemies. It was defining enemies far more broadly um, than a political coalition tends to do because a coalition is uh, is a game of addition and what they're engaged in is, is division and subtraction. Um, but that seems to me to be the same sort of tendency that was apparent in the Tea Party when we thought it was this arch-conservative vehicle and it turns out that it was just a paranoid vehicle in a lot of ways, and in, in ways that Sarah Palin actually identified sort of intuitively. Uh, about the extent to which a lot of folks on our side aren't really on our side.
0: I mean, the part that that, that annoys me about all this, in some ways, and the, uh, I mean, uh, the relation between the neocons and the Jaffaites and stuff like that. Th- this is, um you know, this has, I think, for a lot of people who listen who don't really follow this, it's a little like the life of Brian. You know, it's like the Judean People's Front versus the People's Front of Judea. You know, I mean, um, these are <laughs> these are v- very recondite differences. Um, and they're often they're often so small and so uh, subtle. The distinctions are so subtle and personal uh, that. Too. It, yeah. It, well, there's a lot of personal stuff. I mean, it, it, the the personal stuff of the of the paleocons against somebody like like my dad or Irving or something like that. There was this idea that somehow they had act they had weird, unique access to the corridors of power. That was denied the paleocons, which was always interesting because, of course, Pat Buchanan was communications director for Ronald Reagan, and neither my father nor Irving was a communications director for Ronald Reagan. Pat Buchanan was a TV star, and he had a newspaper column in hundreds of papers. And you know, this idea somehow that they were that you know they were being kept on the outs by this weird Jewish cabal of monsters who were you know who were conserving power for themselves is so incredibly bizarre that it, it you know as a, as a matter as a portrait of reality but it was deeply felt and the point is like you know there's a lot that we all agree with I mean for example the idea that you know uh, Lincoln was the greatest American political philosopher is not one that any neocon has necessarily has any real objection to um you know uh and and uh, yet You know, Harry Jaffa would write you a 62 page letter if you said something nice about the Declaration of Independence instead of about the Gettysburg Address. Uh, You know, I mean, this is no joke, but I mean, I think what's so when when we talk about these differences, it's this, you know, narcissism, small differences. it can be maddening to a lot of people, but I think we actually see it. We saw it. We've seen it explode in the last three or four years. And the final example of that is John Eastman. John Eastman, the author and architect of the cockamamie and ludicrous idea of how you could end up, uh, you know, uh, not, not confirming Joe Biden as president, uh, you know, uh, the vice. John Eastman is a Claremont guy. He's a Claremont guy, although he was a Scalia clerk, I believe, or was he a Thomas clerk? I can't even remember now what clerk he was, but, but Eastman takes this, you know, this is the greatest experiment in America. You know, the American experiment is the greatest flowering of Western civilization. That was Jaffa. Jaffa broke from other Straussians and other conservatives by saying that America was the paradise of the, of the history of mankind and a glor- and, and and there was too much intellectual cavilling about the American political experiment that it was a, that it was an act of incredible greatness and that we should celebrate it and then we get to Claremont turning to the flight 93 election and John Eastman saying if we don't take this election away from Joe Biden this country is finished forever how you get to that that synthesis from deep american patriotism to a deep loathing of the American expression at the polls in 2020 is a fascinating, is, you know, maybe
4: the subject of your sequel to, to, to the right. (laughs) Well, it has to do, I think, with uh, another tendency, um, in addition to the sectarianism that Noah talked about, and that is a apocalypticism um, uh, that is uh, kind of embedded, I think in not Jaffa's first book, which was about Lincoln, um, his first book was called Crisis of the House Divided. It is an American classic, in my view. I think everyone should read that book. But by the time that his uh, worldview um, became uh, more expansive and he began to move to the position that you just laid out, John, where it's basically America is the ultimate synthesis of classical and modern philosophy and Christianity and everything, it, it, you know, it's perfect, Um there's a sense that, you know, the, the world, uh, the politics is a struggle to the death and um, uh, America is being taken over by the, um, a, uh, a, 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 a universal homogenous state that is like uh, almost Stalinist um, in, it, in, its, uh, in its aims and methods. And th- so you get to a place uh, where it is the flight 93 election Um, where uh, another uh, Claremont-affiliated writer, Michael Anton, wrote, look, uh, in 2016, um, America is a plane that's about to crash, and so we might as well take over the cockpit and put in Donald Trump, um, because we're all going down anyway, right? Um, In Eastman, too, it's a sense that, oh, uh, uh, if Donald Trump doesn't remain in power, America will end. America will end um and he was uh he was a thomas clerk uh, corollary to that is
3: maybe that's not such a terrible thing either
4: you have that in your essay as well That it's inevitable and well, maybe eventually yes positive that's
3: what, aspects to yeah you know, some of that's where people.
4: some of them are now which is yeah. uh you know that's where you hear the you know the calls for a national divorce or this idea that we're in a cold civil war that might get hot at any moment so you know lift weights Um, that's, that's kind of where it is now. And I mean, the
0: annoying part about this again, is that it's not like we spent half this podcast talking about how liberal consensus (laughs) on crime and everything is evil and corrupting and has led to, you know, has led to Americans being vastly less safe and all of that. I mean, it's not as though we don't see the things that they see and the problems that they, that, 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 that they, that they see. I just don't think that, Trump was a
3: particularly great help on the road to correcting these errors. No, we in the first see that place. the tools exist and have existed to solve these problems in ways that are satisfying to every every constituency. Okay, so they me, reject me, the existence of the tools in favor okay, of hypothetical tools that don't okay, exist. Okay, but let me
0: let me let me inter- and then bring uh, Christine Aben Abe into, into this part, which is so uh, the Biden administration comes in and obviously as it has made a terrible hash of things, either history has or the or the confluence of events has, or it it doesn't know what it's doing. All of that, right? So, so there is a reckoning coming in 2022, and probably in 2024, since inflation's not going to go away so fast. And um, the the interesting problem for Matt and the right and Matt's analysis and all of this is that this postpones or makes unnecessary a kind of intellectual battle on the right to figure out. What went right and what went wrong, what to save from Trumpism and what to to get rid of and how to make a new synthesis. Not that that can ever be done top down or, or, you know, that has to be an organic thing that happens over time. But they've done so badly that Republicans are going to have a triumph in November and again, maybe in 2024, no matter who runs because I don't know what Biden is going to do or what the Democrats are going to do to turn anything around, particularly for recession hits in 2023. And so the Republican healing or whatever doesn't, isn't going to happen because all we could do is just say, whoever we are, we're not them. We're not them. We're not them. We're not, them. it's going to be, it may be enough of a message. Christine, what do you, what do you think?
2: Um, no, I think that's unfortunately uh, right. It might just be rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic if, if, if a very confused conservatism can't figure out uh, what's good and what's bad. Uh, I was actually struck in, in Matt, in your piece, uh, when you were talking about the Tea Party, I was remembering that when the Tea Party first uh, started gaining traction, one of the things that regular people would do when they wanted to join this movement was gather in groups and read the Constitution. They would literally sit around in small groups and read the Constitution. And this was considered a huge threat by the left. Like, oh, my God, they're reading the original documents. What do they have up their sleeves? But it was striking to me that now, not that long, you know, fast forward, not that far into the future. And they're just trading weird QAnon memes on on social media, like the intellectual part of a lot of this, I think, gets easily set aside. And by that, I mean, uh, the populist, the Trumpian right. Does does it backwards? They have Trump. They have electoral success. They have a sense of power. They try to construct an intellectual lineage to fit that after the fact. Whereas one of the strengths of conservatism, in my opinion, has always been uh, both the constant battles among the factions, which make should make us all better and stronger, and it's a clarifying uh, exercise. But also this idea that we have a history we can reach to. We have institutional memory. We have we have you know founders. We have their words. We have the debates they had. We can draw on all of that, not to not to insist on a purity in the the way that I think a lot of the Claremont folks have done with with the Civil War period, but but to Decide for ourselves and, and what we haven't had, but which I, it concerns me now is an activist class that doesn't care at all about the ideas. It's about power. Now, the, that's the progressive left. They don't really have an intellectual, if you think about their intellectual heritage, it's activism, it's organization, it's, you know, we are in danger of falling into that same trap, particularly if if Republicans again gain power without doing some more soul searching, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I you know, something that struck me, it, both in Matt's piece, but more more specifically, when he was describing the piece today, was when he was talking about what brought the Japhites and the Paleo's together, despite their uh, extensive philosophical disagreements. And um, I think you really home in on it when you talk about their shared animosity toward the wrong conservatives. And what gets me crazy about the idea that there's not going to be a proper reckoning. Um, let's say as seems likely that there's a there's, there's tremendous uh, Republican victory in midterm elections. If it's the wrong type of Republicans, the animosity of those parties is so much greater, as evidenced from social media and the essays that we read of, 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 of these types today, so much greater against the wrong type of Republicans than against um the the democrats that that will have lost um that we will simply return back into right we will rejoin the moil and there will just be more and more infighting
0: um let me just uh, stop for a second here at the uh uh you know as we as we approach uh, as we approach the conclusion of this uh uh discussion or we you know we're, we're running pretty late but uh, but I do have a couple of uh do, do have a couple of advertisers to talk to you guys about? That's uh, Bambi and Novo, and uh, as you as you may recall, uh, Bambi helps you with HR. It's virtual HR. You don't have to pay seventy thousand dollars a year to have an HR manager help you with compliance, wrongful termination suits, uh, labor regulations. Uh, you can take Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, created specifically for small business to get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance, all for just $99 a month, available by phone, email, or real-time chat. Bambi customizes your policies to fit your business and helps you manage your employees' day-to-day all for just $99 a month, month to month, no hidden fees, cancel any time. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule that free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary spelled B A M to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. And uh, our friends at Novo have created a new kind of powerfully simple but incredibly effective business Checking, uh, unlike the traditional banking model, Novo has no minimum balances, no transaction limits, and no hidden fees. And it's customized to your business, as opposed to the one-size-fits-all approach of big banks. Uh, to save you time, free up cash flow with seamless integrations to Stripe, Shopify, QuickBooks Online, and more. You're making something new with your business to support you. Novo has built a new kind of business checking. So sign up to Novo for free and join the community of over 150,000 small businesses who found the business checking solution that admires their bravery. So you sign up today at novo.co slash commentary plus commentary magazine listeners get access to over $5,000 in perks and discounts. Go to novo.co slash commentary to sign up for free. Novo.co slash commentary. Novo platform Inc is a fintech, not a bank. Banking services provided by Middlesex federal savings FA a member FDIC terms and conditions apply. So we are, we're almost at, at the end of our conversation here um, but I, I do think that it's important to note uh, that the the general question that has animated the right uh, and that you begin the book with uh, has been I would say the viability of the American experiment and one of the things that neoconservatism brought to the discussion as it when it sort of came into being, over the course of the mid-1960s and afterwards, uh, was a sense that because most of these people had emerged from the left, that they understood where the left had gone wrong, and that the left had fundamentally gone wrong by no longer having faith or trust or, or a taste um, for the American experiment, that they were, that they had, they had turned on America in a fundamental sense that they did not, they were not patriotic, they did not believe that America was the best country on earth or the freest country on earth or anything like that. They were looking to other gods, looking to other idols and looking to other systems to say that uh, we stank and that these other things were good. And I think that's where the neoconservative moment stuff that you mentioned comes in because we do have a very, very strong tendency on the right now, not the Jaffaites, and not the paleos—a a, a third a sort of this trad-con uh, world of people who sort of have a all have a different uh, derivation. Among other things, they do not, and they should not be accused of flirting with anti-Semitic tropes. A lot of these people are philo-Semitic and they're supporters of Israel, and they don't have that weird sickness that 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 you know stained and has basically poisoned paleoconservatism. conservatism. Um, but they are looking to foreign idols, right? They're looking to Orban. Some of them were looking to Putin, though. They seem to have gingerly stepped away from that. And they do believe that America is a corrupted and diseased place. And the question is, are they, just as that view so infected the left that it poured over into liberalism and then stained the Democratic Party for 20, basically, except for entropy... Uh, The Democrat Party was twice the size of the Republican Party. Uh, The uh, Democrat Party had no intellectual power uh, or or policy firepower in the United States from the mid-70s until the election of Bill Clinton. Um, That is, I think, the danger for the right with this rising force, which is this loathing of America. I don't know how else to put it. They don't like America. They don't like the American experiment. They don't like the roots of the American experiment. They claim John Locke is evil. They they locate conservatism in an unknown philosopher that nobody ever read uh, because they're trying to create an alternate narrative of of, of what is good and true. So, right. do you see the same?
4: I, I think question? it's uh, I think it's con- American conservatives' job to defend America and what makes this country unique and the best parts about it and. Um, the America that we have, And that's another thing. You know, if you're conservative, you're defending an inheritance. And that inheritance doesn't stop at, in some romanticized past. It is going on today. So you're looking at what is best in America today and trying to improve it while acknowledging that, as we've spent a lot of time ta- discussing, there's a lot wrong with America that ought to be reformed. And that is the spirit of conservatism, but it is anchored in a gratitude toward being American and enjoying the, the blessings of liberty that come from the American founding and that are still present in our society, right? That's why I'm, I resist this apocalyptic view, which so easily blends into conspiracism, that everything is over. We, we're, we're, we're living under some alien regime. We're not. We're living under liberal Democrats, They've been around for 90 years. They're terrible, <laughs> but that means we can survive them if we fought, if we have an agenda and if we have the right people. And right now I think the right is, is failing in both of those categories. It, it could still have a wonderful couple of elections just because the liberal uh, Democrats are doing so badly, but um, it won't be sustainable if we, if we don't have the right leaders and we don't have an alternative agenda that, that uh, brings people in, right, rather than frightens them.
3: And contrasts sufficiently with progressive objectives. If you're just looking to use the levers of the state to support yeah. your own constituents, preferred constituencies and harm others, it's just another flavor of what we've experienced over the last two and a half years that the public has responded to none too favorably.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so Matt Connetti, thank you so much for joining us, as ever. Read his essay, is there a right-left, at commentary.org, where you can also read the rest of the May issue. We'll talk a little more about that tomorrow and Friday. Uh, for Abe, Christina, Noam I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.